Lord, as we look at this passage in Ruth this morning, we ask that you'd encourage us as well. We pray that the things you want us to hear from this would come through loud and clear. Help each of us to hear the things you want for us, no more and no less. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you remember last week we introduced the book of Ruth? Did you guys know there's an ancient uh, alternative title for this book? You don't hear it used much, but it's called Three Funerals and a Wedding. Did you guys get that? That was my joke. That's my attempt at humor. Three Funerals and a Wedding. Anyway, we've seen three funerals. The wedding's coming up. Uh, You remember last week we went through the first five verses of this book And we wondered, because it opened with a phrase straight out of some other Old Testament stories, if it wasn't going to be just like them. Abraham's story and Isaac's story where a famine comes in the land and they're moved out because of the famine and then God blesses them where they're at and brings them back. And we we said we're with the little fella in the movie The Princess Bride. We hear the story start, we think we know how it's going to go and suddenly it, it gets interrupted. And the patriarch, Elimelech, he dies right away. They no sooner go to Moab than he dies. But that's okay because Naomi's got two sons and they get married. But they're Moabite wives and that's not the way we would have had it. But maybe there's hope and they stay there 10 years. Remember, then both boys die. And we're just scratching our head wondering what is going on. The story we thought was going to be like the old stories and be blessing out of famine, it's death upon death upon death. It's not turning out the way we thought it would when it started. And you remember the lessons we talked about last week were generally God calls us to remain where he puts us and be faithful. Generally. Lots of exceptions to that, but generally. Uh, Let's see, what were the other ones? Two other ones. Teresa, I know they were important and I'm forgetting what they were right now. Uh, Don't count God out when you're making plans and decisions. Pray about it. Seek God's counsel in the scripture and in prayer and ask other Christians for their input. And the other thing was when you've made those decisions and those choices, then trust God to providentially and sovereignly rule and overrule to get you where he wants you. This morning we start in at verse 6. We'll go through the end of the chapter. So Naomi started out with a husband and two sons. She's lost her husband and two sons. They've just buried both boys, where we jump in at verse 6. Then she, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. I don't know if you had the same thought I did this morning. I went outside for a brief moment. And you remember the cloudy weather we've had? It's all blown away by this crisp, Clear breeze that's come in. Blue skies, gorgeous, gorgeous morning. Verse 6 is like a clear morning with a cool breeze after stormy, muggy weather. Verse 6 is. It's like when the storms come through and things clear up. Why is that? Well, remember we said in verses 1 through 5 that in a book where God is prominent throughout, verses 1 through 5, God is nowhere to be found. He is not mentioned in verses 1 through 5. But all of a sudden, in verse 6, God shows up. God has visited his people in Israel by giving them food. God is back in the story. And because God's in the story, there's reason for hope. God has shown up. His name appears now in verse 6, and it will reappear, which we'll look at in just a little bit. Uh, It is interesting, 
And is this coincidence, Rachel, that God shows up only after dad and junior dad and junior dad are dead and gone? In other words, God shows up only after the men are gone. God's not part of the story where Elimelech and Malon and Chilion are concerned. He's not mentioned. He is absent in their portion of the story. And I ask myself when I read this, maybe it's coincidence. You remember last week we said we try not to read too much into silence. But this will come up a little later. I think that there's some arguments to be made from the silence here. I've got to ask myself or ask you if you're a dad or a husband or just a guy, is God present in your story? And if you're a husband leading a wife, does your wife hear about God from you? And if you're a dad leading children, do your kids hear about God from you? Is God part of your story? If he's not, there's a problem. You know, if you read Ephesians 5 and 6 in the New Testament or Deuteronomy 6 in the Old, it's dads, husbands, and fathers who will first give account for the spiritual temperature, if you will, of their families. God has not entrusted that to mothers. God bless them. He's given it first to fathers. And one of the key things when any of us who are men and dads and husbands, when we stand before Christ and he reviews our life, you and I will give an account for whether God was part of our story. And if he was part of our story that we passed on to our wife and our children, we are responsible. Deuteronomy 6, fathers are commanded. You talk about me to your kids when you stand up, when you sit down, when you lie down. Whatever you're doing, God was to be a part of their life and they were to pass that on to their children. When we were at Adrian's graduation a week ago, one thing I've said at every one of our three graduations so far is, we felt as homeschoolers, if our kids got great academics, but they didn't grow to know, love, and serve God, we felt that we were total failures as parents because parenting is discipleship. It's getting young people that God has put in your charge to come to know him and love him and serve him because that's life. That's life. And in Ephesians 5 in the New Testament, first husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church. They're supposed to be the example. And then in Ephesians 6, when it talks about parenting, it says fathers. It doesn't say mothers. It says fathers don't provoke your children, but train them up in the nurture, the discipline, the training, the admonition of the Lord. We're responsible for this, guys, dads, husbands, fathers. We're responsible. Well, in these guys' story, God's not there. Their short part of the story, God's name, isn't even brought up. And it makes me wonder if that was typical of their lives. Maybe God isn't mentioned because God wasn't present. God wasn't their priority. Well, again, we'll read a little bit, I think, more into this later, but it leaves me wondering, am I passing on? Am I doing right by my wife and by my kids and making sure God's a part of my story and I'm passing that along to them? you don't hear anything else, if you're a guy in here this morning, you need to hear that. Is God at the center of your story? And are you making him the center of the story for your kids, for your wife, for those whom you have some leadership responsibility for, the bottom line? But the fresh air, the breeze is coming after the storm here because God shows up in our story. And so there's hope at verse 6. Continuing on at verse 7, So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, 
and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead, two sons, and with me. May the Lord grant that you find rest each in the house of her husband, a future husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we'll surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait, or could you, would you be able to wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. I love this passage for a couple of reasons, especially on Mother's Day. You've got incredible devotion and loyalty and goodwill of these women for each other. Look at Naomi first. She genuinely cares about Orpah and Ruth, her Moabite daughters-in-law. Genuinely cares. And she says, ladies, go back to your mother's house. She blesses them in God's name. And may God give you a new husband so that you'll have hope for the future, a husband, a household, family, security, children. May God bless you. Go back and be blessed. Go get a husband. Uh, Don't come back with me. She's concerned about them. And then it's reciprocated. Look at Ruth and Orpah's care for her. No, Naomi, we're going to stay with you. We're going to go back to Israel with you. Now, remember when they say this, this isn't like us going from Kansas to Colorado. This is... This isn't even like us going from the United States to Mexico. This is going from a culture in which you've known and grown, grown up in to a hostile environment. They're Moabites, and they know their reception in Israel would not be open-armed and welcome. They're saying, no, Naomi, we're going to go back with you. We're going to stick with you, and we'll go back to Israel. Naomi responds again to them. She says, ladies, I'm hopeless, but you're not. I'm hopeless because I'm too old. To get married again. I'm not going to get a husband. I'm too old, I, I'm too old to get married to have a, that kind of hope for myself. I'm too old for you to pin any hopes on. Even if I could get married today, even if I could have children, both of which I can't, it still wouldn't be of any benefit to you. I can't give you a future husband, and that's what you need. You ladies need husbands so that you have a hope for the future, so that you have provision and security and children. You're both young enough, you can go back You can get married, and you can still have a future. So there's great care both ways, these ladies, for one another. And on Mother's Day, I think, here are these, really, these three widows. There's no children among them left. I mean, Naomi's widowed, lost her husband, and her sons. Orpah and Ruth are both widowed, no children, and yet the care they show for each other is exemplary related to mothers in general. Loyalty devotion, they're blessing each other, they're seeking or desiring the welfare of each other. I mean, these are the hallmarks of motherly love, this kind of love and care and devotion. So they love each other. They want the best for each other. Verse 14, they lifted up their voices and they wept again. 
and they're thinking about parting and the futures. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. It doesn't say the text, and left. But Ruth clung to her. And Naomi says, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Orpah does what Naomi has encouraged her to do. She goes back. She goes back to what should be a hope for the future. And yet, in Naomi's words to Ruth, it sounds like Orpah's departure now has a mild jab, either from Naomi herself or from God, from the author of this book, because she says that, in fact, in returning to her people, the place that looks like a hopeful situation, she's actually returning to her gods also. Is that hopeful? Does that bode well for the future? Orpah's returning to the place that looks hopeful. I'll I'll go back where I came from because I can get a husband. I can have a family. There will be provision for me. My needs will be met. That looks hopeful. But Naomi adds, and by the way, she's returning to her gods. That's not hopeful. Even though short-term it looks like a good decision, long-term Naomi says she's returning to her false gods, gods that are no gods. The Moabite God statues, eyes that can't see, ears that can't hear, mouths that can't speak, impotent, vain gods. Was that a hopeful return? Was that a good move on Orpah's part? On the other hand, Ruth's clinging to Naomi, and even though going to Israel looks hopeless, Israel's the place where God is where Yahweh is, which is his term used throughout the book here where your text says Lord. It's Yahweh. It's the covenant name for God. So on one hand, Orpah goes back to the place that looks hopeful short term and yet long term it is hopeless because God's not there. On the other hand, Naomi and Ruth, they're still looking at Israel and Israel's the place that Short term looks like there's no hope. Two widows, we're going to go back. No husbands, no future, no provision. But it's where God is. And remember, God's in the story. So there's hope for the future. These next verses are the most famous passage in this short book. And they are recited, if you've heard them and not read the book, you've probably heard them at a wedding. And that's fine. I mean, they're well read at a wedding. But what in my mind, what makes these words more valuable is that they're not spoken in the context of romantic, desirous love. It's not a groom to a bride, and it's not a bride to a groom. There's no romantic love in this at all. We can take it and use it at a wedding. I'm not, that's fine. But the fact that it's said from one hopeless widow to another makes the importance of these words all the greater. So Orpah's taken off, and here's Ruth clinging to Naomi, and here are Ruth's famous words. Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. 
Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. You know, the significance of this, we've touched on this just a little bit, but think short-term what Ruth's decision means to her. She's leaving any extended family she has in Moab. She's leaving her old haunts, her neighborhoods, anything that would have meant some hope for the future, she's leaving behind. There would have been small chance at all that she would have any hope of finding a husband in Israel. You remember we talked about this last week. Jews were forbidden to marry foreign women, at least those foreign women who lived in the land they were supposed to take over. Now, Technically, Moab is probably not in Israel, uh, the promised land per se, its location across the Dead Sea. And these guys were willing, these Jewish boys were willing to marry the girls from the wrong side of the Jordan when they were going to stay in Moab. But for Ruth to come back as a Moabite to Israel, she was basically giving up any rational hope of any future. Her commitment to Naomi means I give up hope of a husband, of provision. Naomi, I'm willing to stay with you no matter the cost and we'll eke out a living together the best we can. Uh, Her commitment here was huge. Her loyalty was costly. And I ask myself why, what in the world led to her making this kind of commitment? What led to this devotion? What led to this costly faithful love and loyalty to Naomi. On one hand, the text does not tell us. It is interesting, though, in one uh, kind of another case that later on we're going to see that this faithful love on her part will win the faithful love of someone else towards her. This will come back to bless her. Costly love, faithful love with no visual hope for the future We'll come back to bless her later. And apart from anything else, I think we at least are looking at this as a motivation. She declares in verse 16 that Naomi's God, Yahweh, is her God. And she personally invokes his name, Yahweh, when she says, May the Lord, may Yahweh do so to me and and more likewise, if anything but death keeps me from you. I wonder if in those 10 years that preceded this, if she had come to know enough about Yahweh, the true God of Israel, from Elimelech and Naomi and Malon, her husband, and Chilion, she'd come uh, come to know enough that the gods of Moab were no gods at all, but that the God of Israel, Yahweh, was God. So that maybe she understood, as Naomi implied, that when Orpah goes back, she's not just going back for a husband, she's going back to the gods of Moab. And Ruth is saying, your God has now become my God, and I'm not going back. And I name Yahweh for myself when I make my commitment to you. So if we don't know anything else, I suspect that for Ruth, some significant portion of her motivation for this loving devotion to Naomi is based on her conversion and her faith in Naomi's God, the God of Israel, Yahweh. Verse 19, it says, 
they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came about when they had come to Bethlehem, which is where our story began, that all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Now remember, it's at least 10 years later. Naomi left with a husband and two sons. And here comes a woman 10 years older with a Moabite tag-along, no husband and no sons. Is this Naomi? And she said to them, don't call me Naomi. You remember that means pleasant. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara, bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, pleasant, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned with her Ruth Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem, the beginning of the wheat harvest. Now, in closing chapter 1, there's two key themes, the first of which we've already mentioned. It's that God shows up. God shows up. Yahweh's used at least seven times here, and Shaddai, the Almighty, is used two times. God has become part of the story again. So there's hope. If God's around, no matter what things look like, there's hope. The second theme, and I think the thing we're supposed to come away with here this morning is the thought about returning. Did you notice when we read through this how often the term return is used? It's actually the Hebrew shub, which is translated return, is used 12 times. It's used times that you don't see return in the English. When it says turn back and gone back, that's the same term, shub. The term return is used 12 times in this short passage. God has shown up. His name is repeated. And there's this theme, this word repeated 12 times about returning. In fact, let me make the the case that if you don't have the term return in this passage, and especially in verse 6, there is no story of Ruth. The story of Ruth hinges on verse 6 and the use of the term return there. I don't know if you remember, probably two years ago now, when we read through, studied through the book of Daniel, in chapter 1, verse 8, it said, Daniel made up his mind not to sin. He drew a line in the sand. He declared, this is where I stand, period. And we said that if Daniel, if verse 8 wasn't a part of Daniel chapter 1, there was no book of Daniel. There was no story to follow. There were no visions. There was no lion's den. Because the only reason there's a story is because Daniel had made up his mind not to sin. That brings the conflict. And that brings God to work in the book of Daniel. In the book of Ruth, if you don't read in verse 6 that Naomi decided to return, there is no story of Ruth. There is no book, there is no God, and there is no hope. Return is the theme of this passage. Return. Naomi decided to return, to go back. They're returning to Israel, the place God promised to meet with, live with, and bless Israel and the Jews back in the land. And by the way, when they go back, it's the time of the barley harvest. The theme here is that they're returning. They're turning around and they're going back. You remember we said when we looked at the first five verses, 
we're not clear if God's indicting Elimelech when he leaves Israel. Because we kind of think there's this theme in Genesis in which famine pushes God's people out. He blesses them someplace else and brings them back. But we didn't see God in the front end of the story, so we're not sure. But here, it gives a little bit more credibility to reading into those first five verses that that's not what God wanted for them. He didn't want them out of the land. He wanted them there in Israel. And so Naomi now is returning. She's turning around. She's turning back. Shub, the Hebrew word shub, she's turning around. And that's why we have a story. That's why we have a story. You know, oftentimes you'll find yourself in your own famines and Moabs, and you're someplace God does not want you. You're far afield. You left the place he wanted you a long time ago. And you're so far afield, you're so far out, you're so far gone, you wonder if there's any sense in doing anything about it. And there is. And this story says there is. Verse 6 says there is. The thing to do when you find yourself, you made the wrong decision, you're far removed from where God wants you, it's to turn around. It's to return. In New Testament terms, it's to repent. It's to change what you're thinking, change your mind, and turn around. We were talking about something related to this yesterday. Kathy quoted an old proverb to one of the girls about a journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. And verse 6 is the first step. Naomi decides to return. She decides to return. She decides to return, and she comes back. But you notice what she said? She said, I went out full, but God has brought me back empty. My name, don't call me Naomi Pleasant, call me bitter, because God has made my life bitter. She turned around in verse 6. But remember then, she did turn around. She's in Moab, but then she's got to take a journey, right? She's got to walk back through Moab. Then she's got to cross the Jordan River. Then she's got to come back down towards Bethlehem. So the journey started, verse 6, but then it takes a while, doesn't it? It takes a while to get back to where God wants her. You know, sometimes uh, you'll find yourself or you'll find others you know that they're in a situation they don't want. They're in a place God didn't want them. And you're encouraging them or you're encouraging yourself to turn around, that things will get better. And yet one of the the things that discourages you or discourages others is, I'm so far gone it won't make any difference. And you know, the truth is at verse 6, nothing changed. Uh, She doesn't have a new husband. She doesn't have more food. She doesn't have more money. None of her externals changed. They remain the same. And she's got a long journey ahead of her. And she goes back and she faces maybe the embarrassment, seeing all her relatives back in Bethlehem again. And you you wonder, is it worth it? Is it worth taking the first step? And the truth is that that first step's important, but it's only the first. And that returning or that repentance is actually a longer-term process Now, you know if you've read this story that good times are ahead. But Ruth and Naomi don't know that at verse 6. They just know they're going to turn around. They're going to start heading in the right direction. You know, if I'm supposed to go right and I went left instead, no matter how far left I go, 
to stop and turn around and turn right is still going in the right direction. And it might take a while and it might take a long time for my change of course to have impact on what I see in my life. But it will. Eventually it will. So I make that first step in verse 6. I decide to leave Moab, but my externals still look the same. And they might look the same for a long time. But you can't let the discouragement, that kind of discouragement, dissuade you from continuing to go back the right direction. It's a process, and it'll take a while. But the blessing and the benefit will come, as we'll see later in this story. Do you remember the, uh, there's a Disney film called The Incredible Journey? And these, I think it's three pets, are lost. They're a long way from home. And they go through trial and trouble, and it's a long, long way back. But they get there. And once they get home, it was all worth it. Starts with that first word return, turning back, and then there's a long process, but you stay with it. You stay with it. Now, it's interesting that Naomi blames God for her loss. Now, the scripture, this text does not rebuke her or reprove her for these statements. And the rest of the book doesn't either. She says, I went out full. God's caused my loss. I'm embittered because God has done this thing to me. So don't you find it interesting that on one hand, she blames God for her dire consequences but when she returns, verse 6, when she turns around, who's she going back to? She's going back to God. She's going back to the one who she says has embittered her life, to the one who has ruined her life. Do you find this interesting? I do. You know, as a parent, you might discipline your child. You don't discipline them to alienate them. You discipline them with hope that their behavior and their attitude will change and they will actually be restored to you closer, better than before. The pain of the discipline isn't meant to give distance there. It's actually meant to bring the relationship closer together. So when you discipline your children, the worst response your child can have is to be embittered and resentful and angry and rebellious because you see that they're just going further afield in Moab. What you want is to reach their heart so that even though you discipline them, the fruit should be a closer relationship. Naomi says, God has caused my loss. And the truth is, she's returning to God in Israel. Listen to this passage out of Hosea 5 and 6. Future day, this is long after the story of Ruth, but God has a gripe with Israel. This is during the days of the divided kingdom. Ephraim in Hosea's text is Israel in the north, Judah's in the south. And they are in their own times of Moab. They are not where they're supposed to be. They are not doing what God's called them to do. They're not where he's told them to be. Listen to what Hosea says. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, their spiritual condition, their needs, their famine. Then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob. But he, God says, is unable to heal you or to cure you of your wound. God says to Israel, Ephraim, guys, you're sick. And what do you do? 
you go over to Assyria, to this pagan king with pagan gods as if he could heal you. He can't. He says, I will be like a lion to Ephraim. This is God talking. You don't want to be on his wrong side. I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. God says, my interaction with Judah and Israel, my chosen people is, I'm going to be like a lion, ripping and shredding, harming, damaging, and there will be none to deliver. When God disciplines you in your life, no one can keep you from it. He says, I will go away and return to my place. And if Hosea 5 ended here, we would be in trouble. I will go away and return to my place, God says, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. Until they return, until they turn around, until they repent. I'm going to come in and I'm going to cause this damage until they repent. They acknowledge their guilt. They seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. The response in Hosea 6 verse 1 is, Come, let us return to the Lord. This is why. He has torn. He will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revise, revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. Even though he kills us, Hosea says, he'll raise us back up. Though he slays me, yet will I trust him. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. He will come to us like the rain, the rain that we need, blessing like the spring rain watering the earth. You see, for Naomi, I think she's saying, we blew it when we left Israel. We blew it. God wasn't part of our story. And I realize that. And I feel that the loss in my life is God's doing. And so what am I going to do? I'm going to turn around and I'm going to go back to God. God who tore, he's the one that can heal. God who brought loss is the God that can bless and restore. And although she doesn't see it and probably her hope of real blessing and restoration is very small indeed, The truth is, in verse 6, when she decided to go back, all our hope in the story, it's been born right there because she's going back to the God who tore, who can heal. She's going back to Israel and to the God of Israel, Yahweh, the covenant God who keeps his promises. And she's going back to where there's hope. Doesn't look like it. An old widow with a young widow, how are they going to live? What will they do? How will they make out? but they're going back to the place where God is. And so there's hope. And for me, this passage just reminds me, no matter how far you or I go in the wrong direction, God says, sometimes he tears. Sometimes he's a lion. Sometimes he embitters your life. 
Not because he's an angry old man in the sky. Not because he's vindictive. But because he wants to bring enough pain in your life and mine to get us to turn around. There's no blessing and there's no life outside his presence or his favor. Does not exist. Cannot. But with him there's abundant restoration, abundant forgiveness, abundant hope. Let me close with a verse out of Psalm 127. It says, Those who go forth weeping, weeping, bearing precious seed, will certainly return again rejoicing, bearing their sheaves, their harvest, with them. Ruth and Naomi have come back to Israel, and it's no accident that the verse tells us it's the beginning of the barley harvest. We'll read more about this letter. But God's telling us, it doesn't look like it, but there's hope. They're coming back at the beginning of the whole season of harvest. Barley is the first harvest. And all the rest of the harvest is to come. They're coming back at the time of blessing and bounty. And it started at verse 6 when it said they returned. They turned around. They're returning to God and to the place of blessing. Let's pray. Lord, I know that whatever our circumstances, wherever we've gone, whatever we've done, all our hopes are always and ultimately in you. Lord, there's no hope outside you. Hope in man, whether that's ourselves or others, is vain. But through our God, we can do valiantly. Through our God, we can jump over a wall. Lord God, all our hope is in you. Lord, whether it's physically, emotionally, spiritually, if we've gone afield, if we're in a famine, if we're in the wrong place or doing the wrong thing, Lord, help us to come to our senses as Naomi did. Help us to think anew, to repent, to change our thinking and then change our actions and take that first step back towards you, towards blessing. Lord, I know that you honor the smallest faith. I know that you honor the smallest obedience. Help us to have the courage based on trust in you that to turn around, to turn around to you, Lord. That's the beginning of hope. Lord, thanks that there's hope for Naomi and Ruth. Thanks that there's hope for us. In Jesus' name, amen.